God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. And all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are God's. Children of the Most High, all of you, yet you will die like mortals, like princes. You will fall. Rise up. Oh, God, judge the earth for all of the nations belong to you. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and then cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. Did you find yourself stuck somewhere this morning with this awesome Psalm 92? It's it's an amazing psalm that starts in the earliest sort of historical period of Israel and then eventually is invoked at least part of it by Jesus um, and then captured by John, the gospel writer. Uh, to sort of cut to the chase, uh, Frank Lothar Hosfeld and Erich Zenger, uh, the great... German psalm scholars say the psalm, Psalm 82, is in the end not concerned with gods as such, but with their relationship to the world or with a fundamental threat to the world that is diagnosed to an accusing God as the consequence of wrong attitudes of the gods. Let me go back 
the psalm is about a fundamental threat to the world, diagnosed by God. A fundamental threat to the world. As we worked with the children, it's easy to have an air of superiority and view the belief in other gods that we, I think, very easily can understand as religious projection as just simply dumb. Like believing in the Justice League is dumb. Unless you want to make money. And then it's smart. Because people will pay money to see the Justice League and they won't give their money to justice. Remember, this psalm is about a fundamental threat to the world. That fundamental threat to the world is not idolatry. It is the projection of responsibility, responsibility that in creation God gave to all human beings, and then Jesus had to remind people that it's all of our responsibility. But it's that the fundamental threat is we're going to have someone else do it for us. Someone else will take care of it for us. And if they will do it, we will pay them well. And if we don't pay them well, we'll honor them well. The psalm is about a fundamental threat to the world created by God diagnosed by God. And at least for me, I can sort of see how this threat is repackaged but remains the same over about a thousand year period of time. Let's just take four little looks at this. About the time of Solomon, and my goodness, I can uh, just imagine uh, perhaps uh, this particular Psalm, maybe debuting, and then like the Broadway show that gets canceled right away, debuting in Solomon's temple, and then Solomon yanking it out. We're not going to do that again. There's the brash voice of the psalmist that Yahweh doesn't need the counselor. Yahweh doesn't need the counselor which is unheard of at the time of King Solomon. It's unheard of. Something in that psalmist was able to say, not only is God stronger than the other gods, that would have been the Solomonic line. But that God doesn't need the other gods, and actually the other gods aren't very good at what God cares about. About 300 years later, in the time of Hezekiah, um, under perhaps the great uh, message of the prophet Isaiah, Yahweh, the God, actually not only doesn't need the other gods, but dethrones the other gods. It's no longer our God is stronger, it is our God is actually just, and all other gods are imposters. 
The other gods lead away from justice. It was Isaiah, the prophet, who began to parse very carefully that justice was almost incompatible with the temple system of the ancient Near East. Another way to say that is you couldn't have a temple system unless you fostered injustice. And Isaiah begins to parse and dissect that out. About another 300 years later, we come to someone like Ezra. Ezra has seen the temple destroyed, believes that it wasn't simply the Babylonians, but that it was God's will to destroy the temple. But justice that Isaiah talked about, justice that the psalmist talked about, justice for all people was just way too big for Ezra and thought, God must mean justice for God's people. Let's draw the line of who's in and who's out very tight. And if you're out, you're on your own. Good luck. And if you're in, you get justice as long as you do it the right way. Otherwise, you're out. I think you remember that it was Ezra who told the post-exilic community that if you married a non-Jewish woman, it was God's will for you to divorce her and disown your children. Another way of saying that at the time of Ezra is that evil then, right, comes from other people. Keep those people out. Keep the evil people out. Isaiah, 300 years earlier, who believed that God dethroned the other gods, was courageous enough to say, then if our God is the most powerful, our God must be responsible not only for good but also for evil. Isaiah 45, 7. Eh. It's a lot easier to split and blame. There's more safety in that. And then finally, around 100, a little bit earlier, the Maccabees. I always think of the Maccabees whenever I see Thomas Hammer. That's what Maccabee means. These were you know, priests that were sort of like marine priests. They didn't really pay attention in seminary that much, so they were sort of like, eh, I don't know if we're going to let you preach, but man, they took back the rebuilt temple from Antiochus for Epiphanes. Hanukkah is celebrated today because of them. Their motto was fight for God. God does work miracles, but a lot depends on us. And so they heard, you are gods, to refer to actually the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. Miriam Mai Thompson teaches at Fuller Theological Seminary, says this, the exact identity of these gods was an issue for early Jewish interpreters of this psalm, 
who variously took them to be angels, judges, or Israel at Sinai. This last interpretation is found in the Jewish Midrashic tradition to explain how gods can die like mortals. The Midrashic tradition, the rabbinical tradition, posited that the Israelites were called gods, children of the Most High, when they received the law at Sinai. I don't know if you remember this, but in the story, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, receives the law, and then he begins to glow horns like other deities in the ancient Near East. But they, the Israelites, became subject to death and mortal because of their sin with the golden calf. All of this is sort of in the trajectory of interpretation of the psalm when it shows up on the lips of Jesus. And in John's gospel, what Jesus is trying to say is not that our God is stronger, is not our God is just and the other gods are imposters. It is not God alone that evil comes from God or humans, and it's not that God works miracles, but we better do 80% of it. It's that God is with us. God is with us. Before we get to the reading, I think John would say the reason why Jesus was crucified was because Jesus taught God is with us. And we really don't want that. Here's the reading. Sung among the Jews took up stones to stone Jesus. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? They answered, that's eh, not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, only a human being, are making yourself God. Jesus answered, is it not written in your law, quote, Psalm 82, I said, you are God's. If those to whom the word of God came were called God's, right, the Midrashic tradition at Sinai, and the scripture cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said I am God's son? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. The works of my Father for Jesus are not so much the miracles. They're justice. It's the stuff of Psalm 82. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And that infuriated them. And they tried to arrest him, but he slipped from their hands. 
Again, Marianne Mike Thompson says, and this is important, that this happens in John's gospel at the feast of dedication that we would associate with Hanukkah. Jesus' appearance in the temple at Hanukkah, the feast of celebrating the rededication of the temple after its capture and desecration by the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes, provides the setting for some Jews to ask Jesus to make his intentions known. Is he one type of Messiah? A useful Messiah out of our projections. A shepherd king in the line of David who will defy the current foreign powers as Judas Maccabeus did of old. They'll accept that. Rather than presenting himself as the son of David, Jesus presents himself as the son of God. No one was looking for that. No one had anticipated that. And John would say, no one wanted that. Is it really so strange that early people believed in gods that did not exist and not only believed in them, would give 80% of their income and starve some of their children to support a temple system that kept that belief going and going and going. And it never produced justice. But what did it produce? What did it produce that is more, perhaps, selfishly intriguing than justice? Drama? Being right? Being in the in crowd? And I wonder if that has anything to do with the drama and the turn, and the abandonment of Jesus, the Son of God. Amen. Poor. What a harsh word. One that infers more than a shortage of cash, moolah, gelt, or heaven forbid, bitcoin. Poor is far worse than an inability to pay the credit card balance, the house payment or rent, or regular stops at a coffee shop. At its worst, it is a condition, a state of mind, a step away from destitute. From the inside, it even suggests futility although from the outside, ignorant of cause or circumstance. 
it may look like sloth. When I was a boy, a very long time ago, my family was nearly poor. In those days of World War II, even though our country had been slow to recognize the peril, most everyone rode in the same direction. So my father, a border patrolman who didn't have to go, enlisted in the Marines, and he died in combat a few weeks before the end, leaving behind a wife and two boys. In that era, boys played a lot on the ground, marbles and other sorts of things. We couldn't afford real Levi's or shoes made of good leather, so there were holes in the knees and holes in the toes. And I began school with a handicap by reading at a fourth grade level. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it took me decades to realize what a nuisance I had been. My first grade teacher was trying to coach two dozen kids past cat and hat, and there I was waving my hand every time a long word came up. So before long, I was um, promoted into an immature, poorly dressed nine-year-old in a class with 11-year-olds and almost no friends. And my late wife grew up even closer to poor. Her mother, divorced with two kids, made an unsatisfactory second marriage, gained a third child, and divorced again. She often relied on the kindness of neighbors, made clothing for the girls, worked as a reception, and sang as a paid choir soloist. But without child support, there might not have been enough to eat. These days we call that food insecurity. But neither of us was homeless. Close calls with poverty, however, leave their mark. Anne and I became pragmatic and realistic. All good things were a gift. Bad or annoying things were problems to be solved. Neither of us was good at wanting things. When we did, we overreacted. And buying an excess of stylish clothing, I pursued far, pursued far much, too much information and had no expectations and very little hope. Although, unlike Mark Twain, whose hatred of music left him with very little interest in a heavenly place where he might have to play the harp, I love music so that if there still counts when it's my time, I I hope there's a place. Fortunately, I was blessed with mentors who, to my amazement, steered me through an interesting career, and Anne had responsible jobs with nonprofit agencies. Leary of the future, we saved too much, so our financial circumstances improved. But in our city, our county, our state, and in our country, far too many individuals and families cannot say the same. The poor will always be with you is quoted in more than one gospel. And a degree of poverty may be inevitable, but that doesn't forecast the quantity that plagues us today. The surge of homelessness 
and its byproduct, people who are poor in spirit, creating a need that cries for our compassion. Spokane's West Central neighborhood is the largest defined district in this state. It's close to the poorest. Residents of West Central have an average income below that of 61% of all the neighborhoods in the entire United States. Our own Woody Garvin has played a major role in the West Central Development Project, which is focused on development of more quality housing. The West itself, generally blessed with a salubrious climate, became a magnet for the homeless. Spokane, less expensive than coastal cities, has become a magnet among the magnets. If you rent, you know this. Nationwide, in the face of the pandemic soaring home prices and property values, rents rose as well. Property taxes soared, building owners faced that too, and in Spokane, it costs at least 30% more to rent an apartment than it did three years ago. Vacancies increased dramatically. For more than a year, the rate has been below 2%. Supply and demand forced prices even higher. There's a reason it took months to find housing for Camp Hope's 600 or so occupants. It's true that some people on the street are addicts. Some of them are mentally ill, a few are criminals, all of whom may need care facilities. But the rest, like you and me, were living in a house or an apartment months or a year or two ago. They transitioned from rent poor to poor, then became faceless members of that generic crowd called homeless. They did not do this to annoy us or to clutter our landscape. And putting them out of our public areas does not solve the problem. If there's no place to rent, where can they live? If they can no longer afford rent, where do they go? Do we scorn them if they hang around public places? Should we really choose who deserves our compassion? Jesus did not say, you shall love your worthy neighbor as yourself. Here Wednesday, the city evicted residents of a downtown building for the vile code violations that included roaches, bed bugs, foul odors, and inaccessible fire escapes. Sounds like a flop house. The owner had just increased the rent to $775 a month before the pandemic that would have rented a clean one-bedroom apartment. And what about Medical Lake homeowners and those in the Elk Camden area whose houses burned down three weeks ago? Most of them lost everything, the furniture, clothing, sheets and towels, the toys and games, the golf clubs, 
fishing tackle, sewing materials, the dishes and all the appliances, things they were fortunate enough to have. What happens if they were underinsured or when their rental benefits run out? No one plans to end up poor. The solution, even if it is imperfect, seems to be the construction of more transitional and permanent housing. Catholic Charities, Habitat for Humanity, and Community Frameworks have put a dent in that by creating housing for the low income and the poor. And a record number of multifamily structures is being built right now. But so far, that is not enough. Though the state formed partnerships with willing nonprofit agencies, our city and our county have been slow to develop more temporary shelters. And when the city did act, it leased a warehouse offering little more than raw space. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, who was a reformed socialist, nonetheless still believed that it is wrong to hold individuals responsible for the failures of society. That may be us. We should be ashamed. What can we do about this? We can donate to agencies that mitigate disasters in their aftermath. We can press local government officials to devote more cooperative effort to this growing problem. We can volunteer at nonprofit agencies that serve the poor. When it comes to helping, human nature urges us to donate clothing, food, and toys, but in truth, cash is better because donations of stuff cause a processing headache for the major agencies. They know what they need, buy in great bulk, maintain warehouses and delivery systems, but there, there are suggestions driven usually by targeted need such as Colbert Presbyterian Church's New Hope Resource Center. You've seen the list in our bulletin, even today. However, I was confounded to see men's underwear on the list. What? In a crisis, do women save their bras and panties and men take their tools? Good places to contribute include the Presbyterian Disaster Fund, the Red Cross, Salvation Army, Catholic Charities, Meals on Wheels, and Second Harvest Food Bank, which serves children, families, and individuals by thousands at different points throughout the Pacific Northwest. Why not direct your heart and mind to these needs? Join me on behalf of our congregation and as members of our community to do what you can.